We have a great God and it's great to be able to worship him together like this. And also for those of you who are online, you know, there's advantages to wearing a mask. You can get up in the morning. You don't have to shave. You don't have to put any makeup on. You don't have to worry about how white your teeth are. No one knows because a mask covers a multitude of sins and if applied properly also covers a multitude of chins. So you guys have never looked better. We're in a series right now entitled, It's All About Jesus. Last week we looked at the uniqueness of Jesus. This week we're going to look at the identity of Christ. We're using John chapter 7 as kind of a framework, but it's more of a topical series. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together. We do not take this for granted. This is just a privilege to be able to do this. And even though we have to wear masks, this is, uh, it's worth it because to get together and experience this is so important for our spiritual health and just for uh, contributing something to your honor and glory, something meaningful, because you really appreciate this. And uh, today, Lord, as we open your word, we thank you that you will speak to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the events in John chapter 7 happened during the Feast of Tabernacles, which was the most popular, the most uh, joyful of the annual festivals in Israel. Tabernacles focused on the past, on how God had generously provided for his chosen people during the wilderness years after they escaped from centuries of slavery in Egypt. And it also focused on the future because God was going to do this again, deliver them from bondage and oppression and usher in a golden age. In fact, the prophet Zechariah describes describes it in chapter 14. He sort of gives it as the ultimate timeshare presentation. Verse 6, on that day there will be no light, no cold or frost. Can you imagine that? No more winter? Talk about climate change. Verse 7 says, It will be a unique day without daytime or nighttime, a day known to the Lord. When evening comes, there will be light. No more time change. Wonderful. Verse 9, The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there, there will be one Lord and his name the only one. Verse 16, then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. So during this feast, there was a lot of joy as people looked back and also as people looked ahead. And many actually expected that the Messiah would be revealed during this feast. And this year, there was a very promising candidate, Jesus of Nazareth. But he was reluctant to draw attention to himself, explaining to his disciples in John 7, verse 6, The right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right. So he sends his disciples to the feast in Jerusalem and stays behind for a while. But then later he also goes. After his brothers had left, verse 10, he also went, not publicly, 
but in secret. And that year, the joyous festivities were undermined by the storm front of an escalating theological controversy. Some claimed that God was now at work, that he was up to something, and that, was, that Jesus was the proof of that. But others doubted. Verse 11, Now at the feast, the Jews were watching for him and asking, Where is that man? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, He is a good man. Others replied, No, he deceives people. But no one would dare say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. Now, of course, Jesus could have made a sensational grand entrance with his posse at the very beginning of the festival. But he delayed his arrival and avoided what Chuck Swindoll says, the carnival atmosphere. And he arrived inconspicuously. Verse 14, not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having studied? You see, all of the other religious teachers would fortify their messages, quoting sources, cross-referencing, citing the teachings of their mentors. It was very technical with lots of footnotes and bibliography to prove that they were highly educated and well-read. Their authority was based on years of tradition and accumulated theological insight. But Jesus was unique. He spoke with his own authority. And yet he admitted in verse 16, My teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. And then Jesus goes on to ask in verse 19, So why are you trying to kill me? I'm bringing you the message of God. Why are you trying to kill me? Verse 20, you are demon-possessed. Who is trying to kill you? And so the controversy began to spread like a wildfire. Verse 25, at that point, some people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is, speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? But we know where this man is from. When Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. Verse 31, still many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, when the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? Well, this controversy was not resolved at the feast that year. In fact, it has been kept in perpetual motion by scholars and skeptics for some 2,000 years. All kinds of people have different opinions about Jesus. For example, John Lennon said, Jesus' message has been garbled by his disciples, twisted for a variety of self-serving reasons, to the point where it's lost its validity. Elvis Presley said, I'm not the king, Christ is the king, I'm just a singer. Rock star Bono said, I am a Christian, And the Jesus I believe in turned over the tables in the temple and threw the money changers out. Silver screen legend Charlie Chaplin said, I have no further use for America. I wouldn't go back there if Jesus Christ was president. Atheist Christopher Hitchens says, There is no reason to believe 
that the so-called Jesus of Nazareth ever existed. Comedian Ricky Gervais says, I love Jesus. He was my hero. I wanted to be just like him. Pop star Katy Perry says, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Author of the Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown, says, Jesus Christ is not God, and the church is responsible for the greatest cover-up in history. Reggae legend Bob Marley on his deathbed said, Jesus, take me. And skeptic Richard Dawkins said, if Jesus were alive today, he'd probably be an atheist. Many different opinions. So what? Does it really matter what you think about Jesus? Well, yes, it does. Because this is not a multiple choice question. All of the above, none of the above. I think Walter Martin, who's an authority on the cults, put it most clearly when he said, if you're wrong about who Jesus is, then you're wrong enough to lose your soul for all eternity. And that means it's all about Jesus. Bill Bright says, if you take Buddha out of Buddhism and Muhammad out of the Muslim religion, little would be changed. But if you take Christ out of Christianity, there would be nothing left. If Jesus Christ wasn't God, then it doesn't matter what we say about him. We're all entitled to our opinions. No harm done. Have a nice day. But from the very beginning, there were people who sensed that Jesus of Nazareth was more than just a mere man. The only question was, how much more? Well, let me give you just eight brief examples. We'll start with the shepherds on the hills, working the night shift near Bethlehem while an infant was born in a filthy animal shelter down in the village below. That night, the skies opened, and a host of angels appeared in blinding, glorious light to deliver the birth announcements while the flocks panicked and scattered. But instead of trying to round up their sheep, the shepherds went immediately to the stable to see the Lamb of God. And it says they returned glorifying God for all the things that they had seen. They certainly had a sense of the significance of this child. This was something that really mattered. And then there were the scholars, the magi who were drawn to Bethlehem by some astronomical calligraphy. It was a Star Trek, a long journey through many cold black Arabian nights. But why would they come all that way to honor the birth of a Jewish peasant? Because even if he was the future king of the Jews, it was none of their business. Unless they realized that this birth was not just of national significance. This child would impact the entire world, even their own exotic culture. When a king is born, foreign dignitaries are invited to the celebration. They come bringing gifts. 
The Magi brought gold and frankincense and myrrh. And it says, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Why would they do that? Because they discerned that this was no ordinary human child. Another one who had reached that conclusion was uh, Simeon. In Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 25, it says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. While the shepherds were caught totally by surprise, Simeon was not. He had been waiting for this all his life. He knew the prophecies in God's word. And so while many others had given up hope because it was simply taking too long, Simeon persevered. Verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God. He couldn't believe his eyes. This is him, the chosen one. He's here at last. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, now dismiss your servant in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people, Israel. Simeon realized that in his arms, he was holding someone who was no mere human being. And it's interesting how the role the Holy Spirit plays in Simeon's life. If he had not been filled with the Holy Spirit, he never would have had this experience. He would have never been guided into the temple at that precise moment. That is why it's so important to let the Holy Spirit guide you because you will never miss anything that God has for you. And next there were the scribes in the temple. In Luke chapter 2, verse 41, it says, Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him. Can you imagine what kind of parents those are? They're, they bring their kid to Jerusalem start going back home and realize we left a bind. Did your parents ever do that to you? Have you experienced that? Of course you have. You know, parents, I mean, they're just not tuning in all the time. They got too much to think about. So when they couldn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers listening to them and asking them questions. And everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When your parents left you behind, did they finally find you uh, probably in a small group Bible study? Is that 
Is that where they located you? People, the people in the temple were amazed at, at the, his understanding and his answers. Now, these were the leading theologians of their day. These were the conference speakers, the best-selling authors, the professors at the seminary. People would come from all over the nation to ask them questions and take notes. And sometimes it just got so tedious for the scribes, you get weary of answering the same questions. Yes, 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 the answer is three French hens and two turtle doves, but in the original there was no partridge. But this year, this year, there was someone who held them spellbound. A 12-year-old boy who'd come there for his bar mitzvah, his initiation into manhood. And his questions seemed to probe into the depths of their being, piercing through excuses and evasions, even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, discerning the thoughts of their heart. Who is this? Why, it's almost as if he's... No, no, it couldn't be. And then there were his students, the disciples. Simon Peter the fisherman was one of the first to get a glimpse of glory. Jesus called to him and said, any luck? No, nothing. Worst night ever. Well, let's try again. Out into the deep water. And that's where their nets filled with so many fish that their boat almost sunk. And so Simon Peter walks up to Jesus, puts his arm around him and says, thanks, buddy, the way a hockey team hugs a goalie who just made a key save. Well, not exactly, because Peter also had an epiphany, a glimpse of glory. Peter fell to his knees before the teacher in fear and trembling and cried out, Lord, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. I am unworthy to be in your presence. Peter was busted. He was terrified. It's exactly the same reaction that Isaiah had when he saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, the one who was holy, holy, holy. Isaiah was terrified because he felt so unworthy Woe to me, I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. Lord, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. Simon Peter certainly realized that Jesus was no ordinary human. He was much more than that. But how much more? Simon had to find out. That day, Simon had broken all the existing fishing records. He had become a legend on the lake, but he left his boat 40 feet of tangled fishing net and the largest catch of his career so that he could find out for himself how much more. And then there was the Sanhedrin, the spiritual leaders of the nation, the Sadducees and Pharisees. They saw it too. But it turned them into haters. Although the evidence was so compelling, yet they were desperate to explain it away with alternative facts. 
And so the debate raged on from synagogue to synagogue. Who is this man? It was the most frustrating thing. We are the spiritual leaders of the nation, yet the people prefer to listen to him. We occupy places of honor at the head tables during the great feasts, yet he is the one who is acclaimed and esteemed. So they try to outsmart him. Like Bill Belichick designing a game plan to negate the strength of their opposition. They devised the most brilliant, most diabolical traps, and they blitzed him with their questions. But just as they were ready to sack him, he escaped and scored, and it was always on to Cincinnati. It was so frustrating and so fascinating, so much so that one of their inner circle came by himself to Jesus and admitted in John chapter 3, verse 2, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. Really? Can I quote you on that? Well, it's actually off the record. This is my personal conviction. I just, I just need to know what you're up to. I need to know who you are. Is this the kingdom of God? Verse 3. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again? But how? I don't understand. Meanwhile, his colleagues intensified their opposition. John chapter 5, verse 18 says, The Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. In John 10, 31, again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. One thing was certain. Jesus was claiming to be a lot more than just a mere man. And for his part, Nicodemus would not abandon his quest. He would continue his pursuit right up to the cross where he would give his final answer. That's where a soldier also reached his verdict. The centurion on Golgotha, supervising the crucifixion during his afternoon shift, Certainly the man on the cross, squirming in agonizing convulsions, looked far less than human. Isaiah 53 verse 3 says, He was despised and rejected, like one from whom men hide their eyes, because slaughter is a grotesque sight. Yet the centurion who saw Jesus so helpless suffering on the cross, also noticed that he was totally in command, that he was delegating the carer's mother to his disciple John, that he was pronouncing verdicts as if he he was the supreme justice, forgiving those who were torturing him because they didn't know what they were doing, granting the appeal of a dying thief by opening the gates to the green pastures of paradise, for a lost lamb. 
And even when all hell broke loose and nature was in convulsions, and when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? It was not a defeat, for he died in victory as one who has just completed a very hard task. Jesus said, It is finished. He didn't say, I am finished. And then the triumphant benediction, Father, into thy hands, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And verse, Matthew 27, verse 54 says, When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. An eyewitness testimony. What was it that they saw in him? He certainly was a man, but definitely more than that. But how much more? Well, the Hindus call him an enlightened one. The Muslims go even further and say he is a prophet of God. The spiritualists say he was a medium of the highest order. The Baha'is say he was an actual manifestation of God. The Jehovah Witnesses go beyond all of that and say he was the second greatest person in the universe. All of them sensed that he was more than just a man. You see, Jesus definitely was human. The Bible tells us he grew hungry, like most of us just right about now. Yet he was more than a man because he claimed to be the bread of life. He was a man who asked a Samaritan woman for a drink of water when he was thirsty. But he was more because he offered her living water so that she would never thirst again. He was a man who got weary but more because he claimed to give rest to all who were heavy laden. He was a man who got so tired, he slept in a boat during an intense storm. But he was so much more when he woke up and commanded the wind, peace, be still. As a man, he admitted in Gethsemane that he was deeply troubled. But he was more when he told his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. He was a man who wept at the grave of his friend Lazarus, but so much more when he commanded Lazarus to return to life. He was a man when they took his lifeless body from the cross, wrapped it in a shroud with bandages and laid it in a tomb. But he was more when he broke the chains of death and rose in triumph from the grave. They all knew he was more than a man. They just didn't know exactly how much more until after the resurrection. And it was a skeptic who was the first one to utter the words. In John chapter 20, it says, Now Thomas was with the disciples when Jesus came. Verse 24. When the other disciples told him, 
that they had seen the Lord, he declared, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Verse 28. Thomas said to him, Ah, you are the enlightened one. You are surely a prophet of God. Oh, you indeed are the second greatest person in the universe. No, he didn't say any of that because that would have been nonsense, absolute, utter nonsense. You see, for the first time in his life, Thomas, the skeptic, had realized who he was dealing with. It's as if he'd been gazing into a clear blue sky and had finally noticed the sun. Verse 28, Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Thomas made a positive ID. This was God and no one less. Now, if Thomas had said, my Lord, or if he'd said, my God, it could have been an exclamation. Like, oh my God, we use that all the time. We shouldn't, but we do. Although the Jews never did that. They have too much respect and reverence for that name. They don't dare take God's name in vain. But Thomas cried out, my Lord and my God, because he was addressing the person standing directly in front of him. And can you imagine, it must have blown his mind it certainly demolished his theology. It overruled his rational skepticism and overwhelmed his intellectual objectivity. My Lord and my God. Okay, Thomas, wait a minute. Just, just relax. You're getting carried away. Let's take a knee. We need to walk it off. Maybe we'll go fishing and reflect on what just happened then we can reimagine our faith. What do you think? Was Thomas oversteering? Did he accelerate out of the ditch of doubt so fast that he ended up overturned in the gutter on the opposite side? Well, notice that Jesus did not correct Thomas because he had finally hit the target dead center. Verse 29, then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas, you are absolutely right. And in the years to come, the disciples had a lot of time to reflect and to reconsider their verdict. And there was a lot of pressure on them to do so. But they never backed down from this testimony. This was their final answer because it did cost many of them their very lives. 
And for 2,000 years, the Bible-believing church has held fast to this conviction. You see, if Jesus Christ wasn't God, if he was somehow less than God, if he was a subordinate, second in command, then it really doesn't matter what we think about him. My personal opinion of the archangels, Gabriel or Michael, is immaterial, pun intended. He says tomato, I say tomato, and yuck. It's all a matter of opinion. It doesn't matter. If Jesus Christ was less than God, our opinion about him wouldn't matter. But because he is God, there's nothing else that matters more. Because if you're wrong about who Jesus is, you're wrong enough to lose your soul for all of eternity. And if you're right, you will be with him in paradise forever and ever. Amen. Father, we thank you that this realization has broken through all of our doubts, all of our excuses, all of the rumors, the alternative facts, the fake news that we have heard over the years that we have been able to experience for ourselves who Jesus is. And it doesn't matter what others say about him. We know, we believe. Even though we haven't seen, we believe. And in that belief, we are truly blessed. And we don't even realize how blessed we are. But that will continue for forever and ever. Amen.